Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Andrew Giuliani wants to be the next governor of New York. Andrew Giuliani. I shouldn't fumble your last name because that's key here, Andrew. It's not that, Andrew. On the Red Apple Podcast Network, here's Andrew Giuliani. Welcome to another episode of Not That Andrew with Andrew Giuliani. And today I have a very special guest who really is on the forefront of what I would call a school choice revolution in some states in this country. Maybe not the state that I'm sitting in right now, but in some states. (laughs) So, Corey DeAngelis, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Hey, thank you so much for having me. So look, a little background about Corey. Corey's a senior fellow at the American Federation for Children. He's also the executive director at the Educational Freedom Institute, an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, a senior fellow at the Reason Foundation, and a board member at Liberty Justice Center. He was named on the Forbes 30 for 30 list for his work on education policy, and all of you know how important that is to me, and received the Buckley Award for America's Future in 2020. He he additionally received the Future 40 Award from Maverick Pack in 2021, and he's authored over 40 journal articles, book chapters, and reports on education policy, and he's the co-editor of School Choice Myths, Setting the Record Straight on Educational Freedom. So, Court, let me ask, what state is doing it best right now? And you would really shock me if you said New York. Uh, Yeah, look, it's red states that are engaging in friendly competition currently to empower all families with education freedom. And more specifically, in the past two years, there have been six states that have gone all in on school choice. And what I mean by that is every single family, regardless of income, background or zip code, will be able to take their children's state funded education dollars to the education provider of their choosing. If you want, you can take that to the public school. If you like your public school, you can keep your public school, unlike with your doctor. But if not, you can take that funding to a private school, charter school, or a home-based education option. And those six states are, most recently this week, Governor DeSantis in Florida signed into law a universal school choice policy. We also had Iowa, Arkansas, and Utah go all in on school choice this year. And then last year, Arizona went all in, and in 2021, it was West Virginia. So we have six states that have gone all in in just two years. The dominoes are falling and there's not a dang thing the teachers unions can do about it in these red states. And hopefully some blue states will come along too as more red states engage in this competition. The more that the GOP leans into this as a political winner, like we saw with Glenn Youngkin in Virginia when Terry McAuliffe let the mask slip on the final debate stage when he (laughs) said, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach, perhaps, Perhaps some Democrats will start to defect and start to choose the kids union, the parents, as opposed (laughs) to the teachers union. You know, I have so many questions in terms of where I want to go with all that. But I guess my first one would be, why now? Why are we seeing this revolution that's really happened in the last, let's say, 24 months, but really especially picking up steam over this last calendar year? 
Well, the teachers unions overplayed their hand and awakened a sleeping giant, which is parents who want more of a say in their kids' education. The unions lobbied the CDC to make it more difficult to reopen the schools starting in 2020, and they held children's education hostage to secure multiple multi-billion dollar ransom payments from the taxpayer. But the unintended benefit for families all across the country is they got a look at what was going on in the classroom, this remote learning, which we should really just call remotely learning because there wasn't a lot of learning going on, allowed families to see what was happening. And they started to see another dimension of school quality that I would say is more important than anything that can ever be captured by a standardized test, which is whether that school's curriculum aligns with families' values. And so that's mobilized parents all across the country. They've woken up and they're never going back to sleep. And the reality is for far too long in K-12 education, the only special interests have represented the employees, the adults in the system. But now there's a new union in town. The kids have a union of their own and they're called parents yeah. and they're pushing back <laughs> at school board meetings, but they're pushing back at the ballot box too. Yeah. And it has become a political winner for a politician to support school choice. And it has become a form of political suicide in some cases for politicians to oppose parental rights in education, especially at this time. Well, you know, I've got to tell you, when I was on the campaign trail, this is one of the most fascinating things. I would say some of the most impassioned people that I would see were parents who were fighting for school choice. And the thing that was so interesting about it was, even though obviously it was traditionally a Republican crowd, when it came to parents, it almost was, you had independents, you had Democrats, Mm -hmm. you had Republicans, but it seemed like, particularly with the parents on this issue, the amount of passion and the fact that it was kind of irregardless of political party was fascinating. Yeah, I mean, why do you think Glenn Youngkin won in Virginia in a state that went 10 points to Biden the year before? Youngkin won six points with education voters, according to Washington Post exit polling. And that was the number two issue in the election. And that's mostly because the independents swayed with the Republicans on the issues of parental rights and school choice. And so I think, again, this is a blueprint for success for Republicans going forward. It's more difficult to do in in deeper blue states. But the more that the Democrats start to lose some votes on this issue and they start to read the tea leaves and see that their voters, Republicans, Democrats and independents support school choice and parents having more of a say in their kids' education, the more hopefully some Democrats could come along. This shouldn't be a partisan issue. Look at the the latest Real Clear Opinion Research polling, for example, finds that nationwide 72 percent of Americans support school choice. And that had super majority support among Republicans, Democrats and independents. Wow. Well, you know, you mentioned McAuliffe and Governor Glenn Youngkin now. So and this is something I wanted to ask you. What went through your mind when during that debate, Former Governor McAuliffe, who was running for governor again, actually said that he didn't believe that parents should be the primary stakeholders in their kids' education. What went through your mind when he said that? At first, I thought, what a ridiculous statement, like how stupid for him to say that. But then I started to think about it for a little bit longer, and I started to realize that it's because he's owned by the teachers unions. He felt like he needed to say something like that against parents so that he could get to full-throated support of the teachers union. He even had Randy Weingarten, the most disliked union president in the country right now. She loves you though. She's a big fan of, she's a big fan of yours, I hear. We'll get into that in a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Earlier this week she was on the, (laughs) she did defending public education rally and, and she had mentioned my group, the American Federation for Children in a negative way 
during that talk, but it, it shows you that we are on her radar. Mm -hmm. She's absolutely terrified, and it's because we're winning all across the country. The dominoes are falling. There's not a dang thing Randy Weingarten can do about it. Actually, we should really present Randy Weingarten with an award, a trophy, <laughs> for being the, the school choice champion, although unintentionally, of the past two years. We should uh, give her a, some type of award for inadvertently doing more to advance school choice than anyone could have ever imagined. You know, just like Andrew Cuomo and Bill de Blasio were the Realtors of the Year in Florida just a couple of years right. ago, I think Randy Gardner, Randy Weingartner might be your best endorsement. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So she's been helping us all across the country, but it just appears that they don't know what to do because they've been so drunk on power for so long. And now they're finally losing control over the minds of other people's children all across the country. Instead of supporting parental rights, they, they seem to be quadrupling down because they don't know any better. Right. And you even had Randy Weingarten. So like a couple of months ago, I woke up to a tweet that I thought was a headline from the Babylon Bee, but <laughs> it wasn't. It was a real tweet from Randy in Ukraine saying that she was going to the front lines to, quote, assess the situation. I was like, this can't be real. Everybody was sending it to me. It was true. She was there while the nation's report card scores were coming out showing decades of learning loss, probably caused by her union-induced school closures starting in 2020. And I was like, what is she going to do in, in Ukraine to help make the war go remote like she did with the schools? I mean, that might actually help, but... <laughs> You know, I, uh, I like I said, I think she's as great an endorsement as you can have because it is just horrendous what sadly the teachers union has done to the education, the learning loss that we've seen all around this country. But I want to get back to one thing you said about the six states, West Virginia, Arizona, Iowa, Utah, yeah. Arkansas and Florida, when you say that they are all in with universal school choice. What do you mean by that? This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. means every single family, regardless of income, all families that have kids in the K-12 education school age, can take their kids' state-funded education dollars to the education provider of their choosing. So that could be the public school, but you could also take that funding to pay for private school tuition and fees. You can use it for homeschooling expenses like curriculum or private tutors mm -hmm. or even special needs educational therapies. Any approved education expenses uh, can be covered. And it's the, the purest form of the money following the child. And it's, it's great. Sure. Look, over 10% of states now Six of the states in just two years have gone universal on school choice. This is, I mean, with the momentum is, it's insane how much we're winning. I'm almost getting tired of winning. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, I, I won't be tired of winning until we're done with all 50 states. But it's glorious to see. Look, we've been doing the school choice fight for decades. Right. I mean, we the first private school choice program, the modern day private school choice program was in Milwaukee in 1990. And we've been chipping away with little incremental reforms. But now the states are saying, you know what? This should be available to everybody, not just certain groups and certain income levels, because the previous reforms were more so targeted and, and fewer students were eligible. Now they're just going all in and just saying, look, we provide education funding for every student. We might as well have that fund the student directly as opposed to an institution. 
and it's glorious to see. And hopefully more states follow suit this year. I mean, just today, Georgia's Senate passed a, a school choice bill that is very expansive for, by a vote of 40 to 7 along party lines. And this was Oklahoma's Senate, 40 Oklahoma. to 7 along party lines. And their House already passed a similar bill, 75 to 25. They'll have to go back to committee of conference or something to, to hash out the differences between the two bills. But the momentum is amazing in Texas. Their Senate Education Committee voted and passed the bill 10 to 2 this week or last week. And the full Senate should be voting on it pretty soon as well. And we expect that to pass too. And that's the universal school choice bill. So, so Texas will be the crown jewel. Yeah. It will be the biggest state with school choice if they can get it done this year. So what, yeah, I was just going to ask who's next, but it sounds like you've got a bunch of different states that are lined yeah. up that are looking at the success. And it seems like the snowball is really picking up steam coming down the mountain. Yep. So Texas is on the radar. Oklahoma, Florida just went all in. We have Tennessee. Their house, I believe, passed the bill today by wide margins, expanding their existing education savings account program. Nebraska doesn't have any school choice, but this year they've already passed for the for, on first reading with a filibuster-proof supermajority. What would be their first school choice program in Nebraska? In their unicameral, they need you need a two-thirds majority to get anything done, which has made it difficult to get school choice passed for, for quite a while. But it looks like we had the votes this year in Nebraska. Wyoming had a bill passed that was universal through their Senate. And then the House had a majority of the chamber listed as co-sponsors. But their speaker, a fake Republican, killed the bill by not allowing it to get a a full house vote. That was in Wyoming. Uh, there's, you some, said? there's some roadblocks like that, but that's what elections are for. Right. So in Florida, this new bill, what I was reading was it's really like an education savings account kind of style program that provides parents, what is it, about $8,000 for expenses? Yeah. Yep. That's about right. So let's say just, let's say a parent decides to send their kid to the public school. Let's say it's a good public school and the parent likes that. What happens with those $8,000? Does that go directly to that public school? How does that look, let's say, just, if they decide uh, Yeah, to that's just business as usual. That's basically saying that you're using your full ESA to fund your student in the public school. You're basically paying the tuition of the public school in that sense. But if not, that funding literally goes into an education savings account where you could use it for a wide array of different services. Right. And you could even imagine taking one course at the public school. If you chose to opt out of the public school, you could pay for private school tuition and fees. And then you could also use some of the funding for a course or activity at the public school. Great. Usually people don't spend it that way, but that is theoretically possible with the education savings account, depending on the tuition levels of your private school and how much it covers. And what's interesting that most people don't realize is that when you opt out of the public school, the public schools spend in Florida, I want to say over $10,000 per kid. Okay. I know Arizona a little better. Arizona spends about 14000 I, I want to say, per kid right. in the government schools. But the ESA is only 7000 So the public schools get to keep thousands of dollars even after the student leaves. Right. I mean, just imagine if you stopped shopping at Walmart and you went to Safeway for whatever reason, mm -hmm. and Walmart got to keep half your grocery funding right. each week. That, <laughs> that wouldn't make any sense, but that'd be a good deal for Walmart. And this is a good deal for the public schools, too, that they get to keep any money at all 
for students are no longer educating. Mathematically, they end up with higher per student revenues and expenditures, which what? are really high in New York. I want to say it's what, over $35,000 per kid in New York City in the, in the government-run schools. It is number one in the state, and it is over 30000 <laughs> not sure the exact number, but we are number one in the country yeah. in New York. And in terms of student performance, I want to say we're 28th or something like that in the country. Right. So we are certainly not paying for the value. But I want to get into a little bit of New York because, you know, we have a mayor who actually campaigned as a charter school advocate, but once elected, he ended up opposing charter school expansion. He took over a million dollars from charter school PACs. And in Albany, just a couple of months back, he was not able to push this through. And basically he said, we couldn't afford it if we lifted the cap in New York. So basically, in New, as I know you know well, but just so our listeners could hear, we are capped in New York State at 600 charter schools in the state, and there are, yep. reg- there are regional caps in each part of the state. Now, because New York City really is so dense, we have hit our max of charter schools, I want to say over a decade ago, but 96% yep. of those charter schools have been successful. Just by raising the regional cap in New York, it would add about 85 or 90 charter schools to New York City. Adams was campaigned, very positive, raising this cap, and then got up to Albany, was not able to get it done. When you look at a state like New York, obviously these are not the ones that you're focused on right now because you want to make sure you're building and continuing this momentum in places where you'll have a legislature that will look at this and be positive. But what do you see when you see a state like New York or like a California? that's so far on the other side of this issue. It's up to the voters to hold these politicians accountable or else they're going to keep doing the same thing. What it sounds like some politicians in New York are, are trying to play it both ways. They'll yeah. campaign on which one issue, then get into office and then not work hard enough to get it done. And the more that the voters from the bottom up hold these politicians accountable and make parental rights a single issue for them, and charter schools a single issue vote for them, the more that Democratic politicians will have to think a little bit more and not just side with the teachers unions off the bat. I mean, charter schools in New York City are widely popular and they have long waiting lists of tens of thousands of students. And I I think I did a I did a evaluation from I want to say it was 2019 of New York City charter schools or New York charter schools in general versus the traditional public schools after adjusting for background characteristics of the students and the student populations in the schools, the charter schools were much safer than the government-run schools, mm-hmm. and they do so for a fraction at a fraction of the cost. It, it, a huge disparity in the amount of funding that students get when they go to a charter school versus a district-run, government-run school. And then, I mean, it's just a no-brainer. There shouldn't be these arbitrary caps to protect the status. That's all it is to protect the teachers union schools, the the government run ones at the expense of families who are begging for a better option. You know, when I think about it now, when you think about Randy Weingarten and how threatened she is by you and, and the charter school movement, I think a lot of that comes from her being the head of the teachers union in New York City in the 90s when she saw the kind of the birth in New York City of the charter schools and how successful it actually was. So she's seen as a successful program and she understands that it really is a threat to her mission, which is to continue to build the funds of the union. Sadly, in no part of that mission is the success of students or the graduating rate of students anywhere in that. But I think that's probably in her psyche when she looks at you and organizations that are pushing this so successfully. 
Yeah, sadly, the government school system has become more of a jobs program for adults as opposed to an education initiative for kids. Uh, you look at what the spending goes towards year after year. It goes towards administrative blow and just putting more people into the buildings, yeah. which is good for Randy Weingarten because that means more dues-paying members. But it's not so good even for the teachers that are already doing a good job in the system. The, the funding doesn't go towards additional teacher salaries in a lot of cases. It just goes to putting more people into the buildings. Yeah. So they, when the individual teachers are complaining about digging into their pockets to pay for supplies. Sometimes I feel kind of bad for them, but the problem isn't with their charter school competition. The problem is that their employer happens to be a monopoly that has no incentive to spend additional dollars wisely. And in fact, the NEA, the largest teachers union in the country, actually had a resolution, I want to say in 2019, that they voted on in their annual meeting. And the resolution was pretty simple. It, it should have passed until you think about the purpose of teachers' unions, which is, has nothing to do with kids, right. is the, the resolution was to realign the mission of the union to be about student learning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it did not pass, uh, which just goes to show <laughs> you that it's a teachers' union, not a kids' union. And the NEA actually blocked me after exposing that as well on Twitter. <laughs> Too bad they can't block me in, in real life. We're winning all across the country <laughs> in red states right now. I guess they have trouble reading past the First Amendment or to or through the First Amendment, I guess. So. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but, you know, getting back to New York for a second, you know, one of the interesting polls that came out this week, which gave me a little bit of hope was or the assembly speaker, Carl Hasty. He's from the Bronx in New York, northern part of New York City. And in his district, which is an 85 percent, I think it's actually an 87 percent Democratic district, 56 percent of his district actually supports charter schools. Now you have 70 percent of his district that have admitted that they're voting down the line Democrat. But it gave me hope thinking that, hey, look, if we can continue, if you can continue and advocates so strong like yourself mm -hmm. and we could find them in places like New York where they can really kind of put pressure on these elected officials, I should say mm -hmm. that who can really open the eyes of the constituents of these elected officials who are getting a free pass on this when really those right. constituents support this, you can really start to see change in this, not just in these red states, but really pressure them with saying, hey, look, you know, when are you going to get this done here in our state? That's right. And I think the way forward, almost counterintuitively, is something I like to call bipartisanship through hyperpartisanship. I think the way that we get to bipartisanship on school choice is by Republicans leaning into the issue as a political winner. And then that will lead to political pressure for the Democrats to support it. But the problem is, historically, at least, Republicans haven't wanted to touch education because they weren't the party of just dumping more money into the failing system and expecting different results. But I think Glenn Youngkin laid out a blueprint for success to talk about this in terms of parental rights, school choice being part of the under the umbrella of parental rights. And that puts Democrats in a catch-22 situation politically. If they're already uh, overly reliant on teachers union endorsements and contributions, if they have to choose, if the Democrats have to choose between parents and teachers, they're likely to lose ground one way or the other. Hopefully they lose more ground if they come out against parents like we saw with Terry McAuliffe. But for Republicans to not say a word about this and to not make Democrats make that difficult decision that they could be in, that predicament that they could be in, 
is the Republicans giving Democrats a pass? Yes, the Republicans don't have majorities in New York, but if they can talk about this and make it a political winner, perhaps the blue state of New York can turn into a red state going forward if the Democrats lose enough on the issue. But in the medium term, perhaps some Democrats defect. And we've seen this in nearby states, in Pennsylvania, for example. Josh Shapiro was up in the polls in the midterms Mm. against Doug Mastriano. And right before the election, quietly, Josh Shapiro, the attorney general of Pennsylvania, now governor, changed his education platform to include something called Lifeline Scholarships, which are education savings accounts. Mm -hmm. And it was a bill that was run by a Republican, passed through the House with only one Democrat in support in 2022. Shapiro put his name on it and put that in his put that at least put the policy explicitly in his education platform. So a lot of people were saying, oh, look, he's just signaling because he knows this is popular with Republicans and Democrats and independents alike. And my response was kind of, you know, it doesn't really matter whether it was a true change of heart. I would like it for it to be a true change of heart. But as Milton Friedman once famously said, it is not about putting the right people into office. It is about making creating a political climate of public opinion where it becomes politically profitable for the wrong people to do the right things. And I think we're reaching that point where it's becoming politically advantageous for politicians from all parties to support empowering parents. And it's becoming a form of it is becoming politically detrimental for politicians from all parties to come out against parental rights in education. I'm so glad that Milton Friedman is on your mind going through all this because, you know, when I think about kind of your modern day politicians, so many of them, they think about leverage points. And that really is when when you encapsulate that quote, that's figuring out the leverage point of those who have been elected into political office or are looking to get into political office and understanding that, hey, look, parents have the most leverage in this argument. And so I'm really glad that this is somebody that you've said, hey, look, this is somebody we're looking up to from a different standpoint, but still. I think what we're going to see play out is the GOP becoming the parents party and winning on the issue in the short term. And in the long term, we start to have more defections. I mean, in Georgia, this this past week, we had a House representative, Misha Maynard, give a great speech in favor of school choice, comparing schools to restaurants and saying, imagine if you had to go to McDonald's every day and they were burning your food. Right. Would you go back to that store? Yeah. Obviously not her. I tweeted her video out, went viral, and she voted in favor of the bill this week. Right. So there, you know, there's some chance of Democrats coming along and doing the right thing. It's just we had to put a spotlight on the issue. And it really comes down to an argument about who owns your kids. Is it the government or do parents have the final say in their kids at directing their education? And who knows best, parents or bureaucrats sitting in in offices hundreds of miles away? Because for you to defend the current system, you're basically making the argument that the, the money meant for educating the kids and the children themselves belong to the government institutions. Yeah. If you're on the side of school choice, you're arguing that, no, the funding belongs to the child, not the buildings. And parents are in the best position to direct those resources. And the kids don't belong to the village, especially when the village is the government. You know, Corey, my wife is originally from Lithuania. So the first few years of her life, she grew up in the Soviet Union. I have to tell you, we talk about education all the time and the parallels that we see on the left between what the USSR 
would do in terms of really believing that the state was ahead of the parents. I feel like there are some of my friends that maybe look at me and say, you're being an alarmist on this, but it's right there in front of in front of our eyes. And I just think the message of, you know, look, let the parents decide, give the parents their vouchers and let them basically choose whichever is going to perform better. That's just bringing the talking about Milton Friedman. That's bringing the free market into education. That's right. And I mean, look at one of the Georgia representatives, a Democrat from yesterday during her speech in opposition to the bill. And by the way, she went to private school herself. It's funny, a lot of these people who oppose privatization, they call it, or school choice for others, they exercise school choice themselves or they oftentimes send their kids. I mean, Joe Biden, Joe Biden went to private school and sent his kids to private school, yet he opposes private school choice for lower income families. But there was this one representative, Ann Allen Westbrook in Georgia, who said, quote, who is my child? Every single child in Georgia, every <laughs> single one, without exception, not I'm just my it. own, not just the ones that I gave birth to. No, they're not your kids. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're the parents' kids. It's wild. So it's this deep kind of belief that, and here's another one from Georgia. Representative Lydia Glaze had previously said, Quote, a lot of these parents did not finish high school. I'm extremely concerned that we would put money in their hands and that entire piece of life in the hands of parents who are not qualified to make those decisions. I'd much rather uh, them than the bureaucrats what? and politicians in Georgia. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and she's basically, ar- basically arguing, look, the school system failed them. We got to make sure that same school system fails their kids, too. No, those parents know better than anybody that their kids need access to a better education. So, Corey, I got one more question before I let you go. What inspired you to take on this all-important fight? What gets you going in the morning in this? Well, the government school system is the most socialist institution we have, and it controls the minds of millions of kids for 13 years of their lives. And parents don't have a say if they're not high income, at least. I mean, the most advantaged already have school choice in a sense that they can afford to pay for private school tuition and fees in addition to the the government-run schools through property taxes and other tax streams. So school choice is an equalizer. It allows families from all backgrounds to be able to access educational opportunities. And look, this is a policy that affects everything else. Even if you're not super excited about education policy, let's say you prefer to fix the tax system or you want to fix something else. This, All of the other policies are impacted by the indoctrination that happens in government-run schools. And so families need to be able to choose institutions that align with their own values. And I believe that'll lead to making sure that we save the country as we know it and don't let it slip into socialism, we had to fix the socialist school system. But I also benefited from a magnet school growing up in Texas. I went to government schools all K through 12, but in high school I had a choice to go to a district-run magnet school that you're not assigned to. And that was a great benefit for me. And I want other families to have education opportunities, but it shouldn't be limited to schools that are run by the government. You should be able to take that money to a private charter or home-based education option at the same time. This is, I mean, and this is just the easiest policy to argue for. It is the biggest disaster that we have as far as public policy, where we have people residentially assigned to government-run institutions that they must pay for with, with no choice when it comes to exit options. We don't structure anything else like that. Even when we're talking about things like food stamps, the funding goes to families. We don't assign low-income yeah. families to government-run grocery stores based on where they live. That would be ludicrous. Whether you're for or against food stamps, 
I think we can all agree if we're going to pay for them, they should go to people and they should be able to pick where the money goes. Absolutely. We should do the same thing with K-12 education and fund people as opposed to institutions. Well, Corey, thank you for all the amazing work you're doing on this. Where can my listeners follow you? You can go to Twitter. It's at DeAngelis Corey. But also, if you want to help us in the fight for education freedom, you can go to the educationfreedompledge.com. That's educationfreedompledge.com. Well, Corey, keep up the incredible work, and thank you very much for joining me this week on Not That Andrew. Absolutely. Thank you, Andrew. Of course. We'll see you guys next week.